We serve an awesome God, do we not? All right, let's all stand to our feet if you can. And if you have your Bible, open your Bible to the book of Romans. We are in chapter 6 this week. Book of Romans chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 1. When you got it, say so. All right, I only heard like a couple of so's, so I'll wait. Maybe you're not awake yet. You should be awake after that worship. That was pretty amazing, right? Good time in worship. When you got it, say so. There we go. That sounds better. The book of Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with, with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word, God, and thank you for the privilege that we have to be in your house worshiping your name today. And Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have to hear your word. Thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation, God, to worship you as we desire, Lord. And I pray this morning that we would not just hear from you, God, but that we would respond to you that we would bring you glory in the way that we listen, in the way that we live after we have heard your truth, God. May you be glorified. We pray against every distraction in our minds. We pray against every plan of the enemy to steal your word away, to confuse our hearts. God, may you be glorified. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so if you do not have an outline this morning, raise your hand and the ushers will be sure to bring you an outline. We want to be sure that you're able uh, to follow along in the introduction of the sermon. I want to be sure that you're able to take notes and we want to be sure that you are able to answer those introspective questions. And we want to be sure that you are not just hearing on Sundays, but that you are actually able to take something home with you. And my hope is 
that as I share with you weekly, that you remember that you are a disciple of Jesus. And as a disciple of Jesus, you have a responsibility to help others grow in their faith. And so we make it easy. I mean, I try to make it as easy as I can. We go through the scriptures together, and all you have to do is just make an appointment with someone, sit down with someone to encourage them in their faith by walking through what you have been learning. I was, I was talking with um, Sister um, Barbie yesterday, and she was telling me that they, their, their core connect actually meets their last core connect um, for the for the winter semester was Friday and for some of you that was probably similar around last week but um, nonetheless she said that they didn't leave until like midnight and, and you want to know what they're they're discussing the sermon notes right so they're having a good time right they're learning more they're growing more so I encourage you to sit down with someone else help them grow in their faith amen, amen. it will help you grow in your faith as well and so we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans and if you're looking at the at your outline there I just want I just want you to notice on the on the left hand side of your outline you'll see a few things that there there's some um, Roman numerals there and so we have one two three and four and so the first one is the introduction we went over that the second one is sin that is righteousness demanded we went over that as well we walked through um, chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 in verse 20 and then the third one was salvation righteousness declared chapter 3 verse 21 to chapter 5 verse 21 and then we have sanctification in, in, in the fourth section of the book of Romans, which is what we're going to start today. This is righteousness defended, and we're going to look at, as we walk through chapter 6, victory that we have over the flesh, the liberty that we have from the law in chapter 7, and in chapter 8, we're going to see the security that we have in the spirit. And so one thing that I think that we could all probably agree with, this is in your outline there, is there is some level of struggle with sin in our lives. If we, if we think about it, right, we all probably struggle with sin at some level, some area that we struggle in. And to say or to deny this is to say that you never miss the mark of perfection that God's law requires for us in thought or deed. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, no, I don't struggle with sin, I never struggle with any kind of sin, I am walking in holiness, then you are denying the fact of God's pure holiness. I remember one day I had a conversation with someone, and um, we were talking about daily confession of sin, and their thing to me was, and, and, and I thought that this was a, a very weird question that someone would have, because they were like, do you confess sin daily? And I was like, of course I confess sin daily. And they're like, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I have sins to confess daily, and I'm like... I don't know, bro. I want to I live like you. I mean, I need, you, I, need, I need what you got, the pills you're taking or something like that because I recognize that I sin daily. I don't just sin daily. I mean, I sin often throughout the day, right? Whether it's in thought, you know, I'm driving down the road the other day, right? And I'm like, I think things. I, we were having a conversation with, um, with Ja'Cory and Amy. We were sitting out talking and I said, you know, I'm not an aggressive driver like in my driving. I'm an aggressive driver in my communication in my vehicle, Right? And I don't curse or anything like that, like in the sense of, like, I'm not dropping F-bombs and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't do that stuff. But I'm like, bro, can you move? Like, can you hit your gas? Like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I like talk to people, right? And I, I and I try to keep my hand gestures to myself, right? And I, not because I'm sending anyone anywhere, right? It's just because, you know, remember I told you this story. Anyway, yeah, yeah. A couple weeks ago, right, I was driving and I was like, ah, you know, the guy in the rearview mirror, right? He was upset because I cut him off. Anyway, terrible, terrible behavior on my part. Uh, my daughter helped me to come to repentance in that moment. But nonetheless. I'm driving in the, down the road and I get angry with people, right? The way they drive. There was a point in my life when I used to drive a lot. Now I don't drive very often because everything is like right in Oviedo, like everything I do. And so when I have to drive, especially during rush hour, glory to God. 
It's a moment of, 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 of a lot of repentance, amen? Like there, there's moments. And so the point that I'm making is that I recognize when this person was asking me that question, I was like, man, I don't understand how you can say that you don't confess sin daily and that you don't even know what sins you commit. That you don't recognize that, man, your thoughts sometimes are not right. Like I recognize that. And when I, when I measure myself by God's holy standard, I realize that there is a real struggle with sin. And chapter 7 is going to help us unpack that a little bit more. But what I want us to realize this, and you can look at your outline here, while Christianity is not primarily about behavior modification through adherence to rules, it is about life transformation through the power of grace. Let me say that again. While Christianity is not primarily about behavior modification through adherence to rules, see, I, I want to pause there because a lot of times people think a Christian is supposed to act a certain way. I agree with that. There are clear things that we are supposed to do. But Christianity is not primarily about you being a better person. Are you here? Christianity is about you recognizing that you cannot be a better person apart from the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you cannot ever be good enough to earn God's righteousness. Christianity is not, and what I'm, what I'm not saying is that we don't need to try to live better. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that Christianity is not primarily about behavior modification. But what it is about, it is about life transformation through the power of grace. It is about us coming to a face-to-face -face encounter. I love the, the, the songs that we sang this morning. You know, you know, who you say I am, that's who I am, right? Understanding who you are, right? Understanding your identity in Christ. But then also recognizing why I have the power to overcome because of the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll talk about today in a moment. But the truth is that once we experience the grace of God, our lives are transformed and our way of living is transformed. We get that, right? And so here's the thing I want you to understand, and I want you to think about this this morning. What Jesus did for us should be reflected in how we live for him. What Jesus did for us should be reflected in how we live for him. When, when, when you think about what Jesus has done for you, when you think about what Jesus went through for you and for me, it should motivate us to live a certain way. If you are a follower of Jesus, it should motivate you to want to live holy, to want to obey his commands. If you are not a follower of Jesus in this place and you do not have a relationship with God, then you need to consider what Jesus did to offer you salvation because what he did was he came to this earth a holy Holy God came down to our level. He, he, he divested himself of his glory for a moment, came to this earth, lived a perfect, sinless life. He died the death that you and I deserve. He didn't deserve to die the way that he did. He was hung in between thieves. He was, he was subjected to the worst type of death that anyone could have been subjected to at that time. If you think about it in our day, in our context, in our context, the death penalty is for the worst of criminals is it not that's what the death penalty is for the worst of criminals are the ones that get that right and so i want you to get this jesus was in in, in that in that time he was experiencing that type of judgment he was experiencing the judgment of the worst of criminals and yet he never sinned once he was just hated because people had issues with him because they were jealous. They, they didn't like the fact that the, that the people were flocking to him. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was doing miracles, that power, signs, and wonders were flowing through his life. The, the, the religious leaders of that day did not like that. Therefore, Jesus was crucified for us. And that 
should motivate you if you are not a believer to turn to him. To trust him today. To put your faith in him today. To turn from your sin and, and be born again is what the Bible teaches. And so the first thing I want to ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, grace, grace. is not a license, not a license. to sin. So, so we've walked through a lot of stuff as we've gone through the book of Romans. We've talked about justification. And the first thing I want you to get, and I love this because this is like chapters 6 through 8. These are like my favorite chapters, right, in the book, right? I mean, I love them all because they're all so amazing to me. But I get to talk about like, yo, you cannot sin. You cannot just live how you want to live. You cannot just do. I, I, I'm firmly, listen, I'm a grace guy. God has rocked my world by helping me understand the power of grace. But I want everyone in this place to understand, grace is not a license to sin. Grace is not your ticket to heaven, and you can live how you want to live on the way there. No, 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 no. Grace should change us. And so what does the apostle Paul do here? So in verses 1 and 2, which we look at, and, and through this whole time here, the apostle Paul returns to that diatribe type of communication. And so that diatribe type of communication, it is an intense communication, right? It's an intense communication that he brings forth. But what it really means in the context of those days is that he was spending time in a, in, in a particular topic. And so the Apostle Paul has done this throughout this book where he will spend time expounding on and, and over and, and going over a topic and, and almost getting you to the point like, okay, I get it. And then he's like, okay, let's move on to the next thing. When you get it, then he's like, okay, now we're going to go to the next thing here. So he starts here with this argument that he creates, not necessarily with a person, because notice the apostle Paul never names anyone here, but he has an argument with an ideology because he knows what the people are thinking as they're reading. He knows what the people are going to think. As the apostle Paul is sitting down and he's writing, right? It's kind of like if you're getting ready like to send an email or you're getting ready to send a text message or whatever. I don't know about you, but me, like I know, I know myself. When I sit down and I get prepared to write an email or I get prepared to write a text or send a text or something like that, I always think about, okay, how is the person on the other end of this going to respond to what I'm saying? And if I know the person well enough, right, you know what I start doing? I start thinking about the questions that they might have. I start going through to make sure that I'm clear on what I'm trying to communicate. Why? Because I know the objections that may come in their mind. I know the questions that may come in their mind. Why? Because I know them. The Apostle Paul, he was a Jew, and he knew what the argument in the mind of the Jewish believer would have been. And so he starts off with this particular thing. And, and, and what he does here is we see his greatest argument, the greatest argument against what is called antinomianism. And what antinomianism, it is this mindset, it is to live lawlessly in an effort to really experience grace. And you, 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 you don't obey because that's how you experience God's grace. Why? Because he said earlier in chapter 5, what did he say in chapter 5? In chapter 5, he said that the law came to do what? To bring about the, 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 the reality of your sin. He said, but where sin abounded, what did he say? Grace abounded much more. And so the reader, is, is, is what he's saying is the person who's listening is going to say, okay, Paul, so what are you saying? You're saying that I cannot, I, I cannot out-sin the grace of God? Are you saying that if I sin, that God is going to forgive me and he's going to forgive me every time I confess sin? And his answer is yes. He is going to forgive you every time you sin. So then the automatic thought is, well, then I could just keep sinning. I can just live in sin so that grace abounds more. So my life is an example of God's grace. And Paul is like, may it never be. That's his response here. And so what does he go? He, he talks about this antinomianism. And he, he deals with this in verse 1 and 2. What does he say? He says this. He says, what shall we say then? 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I, I, I want you to look at this translation here because when, I, when, when you look at what is being said here, I want you to see how this should be expounded. And so this is, I will listen to this. It says, what then shall we say? This is like a literal translation of those words that are there. What then shall we say? Shall we habitually sustain an attitude of dependence upon, yieldedness to, and cordiality with the sin nature in order that grace may abound? I want you, did you hear that? This is what Paul is really saying in that little bit of that verse. When you read it in the Greek, this is what Paul is talking about. He is saying this. He is saying, shall we habitually sustain? When he says, shall we continue in sin? What does he mean? He's saying, shall we continue? Shall we abide in? Shall we be okay with sin? And we have to figure out what Paul is trying to talk about when he's talking about sin. Is he talking about the, acts, the action of sin? No, no, no. That's not what Paul is talking about. What the Apostle Paul is talking about, and I don't have time this morning to get into how you figure all of this out, but you know grammar, right? So grammar, if you're reading something, let's just say that I was writing a, a little love note to my wife. And it was more than a note. It's like a couple of pages. And as I start writing this note, I'm sitting down, and I'm like, you know, I was sitting down today, and I wish she was in here so I'd get some points for this. But anyway, um, but so I'm just kidding. But anyway, I'm sitting down, and I'm like, you know, I was sitting down today, and I was thinking about you. And as I was thinking about you, and I start going through this whole thing, and I start explaining. In this, I start talking about. And then, and then at some point in the note, and I said, you know, when I thought about this woman, it just made me realize how grateful I was. So if you just read, I thought about this woman, and you, that was the only part of the letter you read, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be like, who is this woman? Right? How would you find out who this woman is? You would go backwards in the letter, and you would see who is this woman that he's talking about. Who is this woman that has changed his life? Who is this woman that is there? And so what I'm saying is, in the Greek, it's the same thing. Same rules apply. And the only thing is that because we don't know Greek, so we're not going back, and we're not like, okay, well, this, you know, ties here. But what I want you to do is just trust me this for the moment. I'm just asking you to trust me. You can go back and study it yourself. You can go and do a Google, a Google search on this. But what the Apostle Paul is pointing to is he is pointing to our sinful nature. Should we continue being okay with our sinful nature? Should we continue, as I read there, should we continue to habitually sustain an attitude of dependence upon? Should we be dependent upon our sinful nature? Should we be yielded to our sinful nature? Should we be cordial with our sinful nature in order that grace may abound? Are you getting that? This is what Paul's question is. He's saying, should we be that? And his readers would have understood what he was trying to say there. And so Paul goes on and he says what? He says, certainly not. He says, absolutely not. In another translation, may it never be. He, he, he responds emotionally. And he says, it should never be that way. You should never think that you are okay living in sin. Are you getting that? He is saying you should never feel that it's okay for you to just go with your compulsions, your desires. We are supposed to do what? Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, then you are going to have to do what? Deny yourself. What was he saying? Deny your sinful nature. Deny those compulsions of your flesh. Deny those things that are in there that want to come out every time a situation arises, whether it's a, a, a confrontation and you want to run, whether it's hurt and you want to not forgive, whatever it is that is deriving from your sinful nature, you need to what? You should never think that it's okay to live that way. And Paul goes on to tell us why. And so one writer said this. I thought that this was really helpful. This, what Paul is talking about, is the mechanics 
of why it is that we can't live in sin. And what he's saying is, it is impossible for you as a born-again believer to continue in sin. Look what he says here. He says, certainly not. He says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's not even possible. That's not possible. Let me ask you a question. When a person dies, do they remain living in their house? They don't live there anymore. Right? We believe that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so that person doesn't remain living there anymore because they are dead. And so Paul's argument is the same. He is saying, how, how, how is it that you are going to live in this, in this constant, continual submission to your sinful nature? Don't you know you've died to this? So what does the Apostle Paul mean by death? Death, whether physical or spiritual, it means separation, not extinction. Let me say that again. Death, whether physical or spiritual, means separation, not extinction. Why do we say that? Death to sin is separation from sin's power, not the extinction of sin. Get that. Being dead to sin means being set free from sin. And so when the apostle says that we have died to sin, he is reminding us that we have been freed from the penalty, we have been freed from the power, and we have been freed from our former powerlessness against sin. That's what he's telling us. He's saying that if you are born again, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, if you have trusted him, then you are no longer a slave to sin. He is saying you are no longer bound under that taskmaster of sin. You are no, listen, you are no longer there because you have died. You are separated from those sins. And we know this. How do we know that the definition that I just gave you about sin, which is what? It, it means separation, not extinction. Because when God told Adam in the garden, he said to him, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. There was a death that took, that took place almost a thousand years later in his life, but he died immediately spiritually. And you know why we know that? Because he was now separated from God. He was kicked out of the garden. Those are the things that happened. There was separation that took place. Death occurred. And what Paul is saying here is that we cannot live in sin because of what? Because we have been separated from it by the death that we experience in Christ. And so here's what I'll say is that we must ensure that we do not allow ourselves to become comfortable in or with our sinful nature leading the way of our lives we got to be we can't be comfortable with that we cannot as believers listen if you're a believer this is for you if you are a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a christian listen if you're in here and you don't call yourself a christian you still need to make a decision for jesus that's just a reality you need to decide if you want to follow christ or not if you are not a believer but there are two people in here either the believer we talked about it last week either the person that's in adam or the person that is in christ one of the two you're one of the two and if you would call yourself a person that is in Christ, then you and I cannot be comfortable living in our sin. We cannot be comfortable allowing our sinful nature to lead our lives. We must be, be reminded more often than not that our old man or our old woman is what? Is dead. And here's what I want you to think about. I thought about this. How can I illustrate this? So have you, ever, have you ever heard, I hope you've never said this to someone, but have you ever heard someone, or maybe, and I hope no one's ever told you this, but in a situation where you say, you know what, you're dead to me. Real theatrical, right? You're dead to me, right? Does that person actually die? No. But, but, but they're dead to you means what? It means you're done with them, right? 
That's what happened at the cross. Your sinful nature is dead to you. It still exists. We're going to see this in chapter 7. It still exists. It's still there. But you have been separated from it because of what? Because you have been given new life. Which brings us to our second point here. Say this with me. We must understand our freedom from sin. We must understand our freedom from sin. So when I say understand, I, I often use that in my sermons and, and, and my points. If you go back in time and you look at my main points, I always am asking you to understand something. What am I trying to say when I say you must understand this? What I'm saying is you need to stand under something. Not, 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 just, not just grab it here, but it's something that you have to stand under, right? It's something that you have to grasp, but not just like, oh, I understand that. No, no, no. It's that you stand under that truth. Like, if you understand this, then you're going to stand under it. That's going to be a foundation upon which you stand. It's going to be a covering for your life. And so when I say that, what I mean is this, is that you have to understand this. So what does Paul go on to say? And so verses 3 through 10, there's a lot of ground to cover there, but I want you to grasp there's two main points in there. And look, look at what he says. He'll read this together. He says, or do you not know? Because Paul asked the question, how are you going to continue in sin? He says, but hold on a second because y'all are so deep theologically. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? These are all rhetorical questions. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And you know what Paul does for the rest of these verses here, for verse 5 through 7 or 5 through 10? He unpacks what he just said. That's what he does. And Paul does that throughout his, his writings. He say, he'll make a statement, and he will unpack it for us as he walks through it. He solidifies it. So what is he saying here? He's saying two things have happened. One of them is that because we have been baptized into Christ, and for those that have not been baptized yet in water and are followers of Jesus, here's what you'll grasp. You're going to go through a class that we have, but here's what you'll grasp. What you will understand is this, is that baptism is a symbolism of what God has already done inside of you. That's all it is. It's an outward expression of what God has already. You don't get saved by going into baptismal waters. You don't come up, right, like, like you were not saved when you went in, and now you're saved. Nope, that's not it. Baptism, that's the reason why we don't baptize babies, right? There's some people, they baptize babies. I learned one day the reason why they baptize babies. They baptize babies because they believe, right, in the Adamic nature. And so what, that, what, what some people believe, and even some Protestants believe this. This is not just only Catholics. There's some Protestants that believe it, some Protestants that I love, right? And, they, and what they do is they believe that there is, there is some level of baptismal regeneration. Listen, that is not true. You are not born again because you are baptized. You are baptized because you're born again. Are you here? That's the reason why you get baptized. But here's what we have is that we have to realize that Paul is saying there's something that occurred. And see, here's the, here's the cool thing about back in the day. Back in the day, they understood baptism. They didn't have baptism classes. Hello. What they did was they heard a message and said, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. It was all simultaneous. And so at the moment you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into water. And so Paul was painting a picture for us here, but he's saying that you were immersed into Christ. The Holy Spirit made you born again, and you were immersed into Christ, right, when you gave your life to him. And at that moment, you were what? You were baptized into his death, but you were also baptized into his life. Are you here? Two things have happened here. We were baptized into his death, and that is what has made us free from our sin. We have simultaneously been joined together with his death and his life, and this is how we are sanctified. Say sanctified. This is how we are sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. 
This is how God separates us to himself. This is how God separates us from sin. This is how God renews our mind because he has already done something inside of the believers. So let's go on and continue to read this as, as Paul unpacks this for us. He says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so again, he's just pointing out what happened. There was something that occurred. Remember what I said last week? Some of you didn't like this. Maybe you'll like this one, right? The, 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 that Adam, remember when I said when Adam, because Adam represented us, right? When Adam ate of the fruit in the garden, that we were literally there with him. And we were, and we are now guilty. And you're like, no, nah, I want to redo. Listen, Jesus is your redo. Are you here? Jesus is the redo. If you put your faith in him, you know what happens? It is like you were there when he was dying. Are you here? Something happened. It is applied to your life at the moment that you give your life to Jesus. It's not like it happened. It, 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 it's not like it happened before you made a decision for you. But the provision is already there. Christ died in our place. And anybody who puts their faith in Christ, this is what happened. The moment that you decide, you know what? I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I am baptized into Christ. And I am now baptized. I am united with him in his death. But I am also united with him in his resurrection. I now have newness of life. There is new life in me, and I am no longer. I have been separated from the sinful nature. He goes on to say in verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old man, that's that sinful nature, was crucified with him, that the body of sin or the sinful nature might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sinful nature. Every time you see sin in this portion of scripture, I want you to put the words in there, sinful nature. That's what it means in the Greek. Again, we'll go back to that. If you do that, it takes on a whole different light and a whole different meaning of what Paul is saying. You are no longer slaves of this sinful nature. He goes on in verse 7. He says, for he who has died has been freed from the sinful nature. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. If we died with him, this is what we believe, that we should live with him. We should live for him. Eternally, we're going to live with him, but now we live with him as well. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. So here's the beauty of this. Death no longer has dominion over Jesus. Guess what that means? It no longer has dominion over you. If you are a follower of Jesus, death no longer has dominion over you. You know what that means for you? That means that you don't listen. You don't need to like welcome death, but you should be okay with dying. Are you here? Like you shouldn't be saying like I want to die tomorrow. Like I don't know. I'm not. I'm probably never going to say that. There may be a point in my life that I say I want to die tomorrow or like die right now. Like there's moments like that. But here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you should not fear death. And if you fear death, then maybe you don't understand the truth of what God is saying to you. If you fear death, maybe you haven't grasped the reality that no longer should you fear death because death doesn't have dominion over Jesus. But not just that. That's in that eternal sense. But nobody said earlier in chapter 5, he talked about death reigning because of sin. You know what he's saying? He's saying death doesn't reign over you. Sin doesn't reign over your life because of what? Because of what Jesus has done. He says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been nailed, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin, right, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so Jesus died once for all. And now he has life, the life that he lived. He lived on this earth for God's glory. The life that he lives now is for the glory of the father and so listen now we are not only made judicially grasp this with me 
Because we've been talking about justification for the last few weeks. But I want you to understand this. By what Paul is saying here, we are not only made judicially right with God or given peace with God or given a right standing with God. But we are made right with God, meaning that we are able to walk right before God because of what? Because of our unification with him in baptism, in our baptism into Christ, to his death and his resurrection. Make sense? We now have a new life that we've been given. We now have been unified with Christ. And no longer, it's not just about, it's not just about the, that, that, that vertical relationship with God. It's about my horizontal relationship with man. It's about the way that I live. I can now live righteously because what? Because the dominion of sin has been broken off in my life. So here's what I want you to grasp. Two things must be clear. In Christ, our old man has been rendered inoperative. Did you get that? He has been rendered inoperative. He is no longer has power. His, the, the, the old man has been done away with. That's what that means. Rendered inoperative. He's not operating at all. He doesn't have power to have dominion over our lives. Jesus' death broke sin's penalty and broke sin's power over our lives. And his resurrection, now grasp this, not his resuscitation. His resurrection gives us new life, which is the power to live holy, which is what? Our vision, pleasing, pleasing to God. It is, the, the reason why I point out not resuscitation, it's not like Jesus got beat up and passed out. Because a lot of people believe that stuff. They don't, they, they, because they can't grasp the reality of the resurrection. But here's why that's, that, that's a problem. Because if Jesus just resuscitated, then there's no new life. He can't offer us new life. He can't give us new life because he got beat up, he passed out, and then while he was in the tomb, this is that, the, the swoon theory I think it's called, and he was beat up, he was in the tomb, and the cool breeze came and woke him up. Listen, I need you to know something. It was no cool breeze, but the Holy Ghost that woke him up. He was dead, 100%. The Roman soldiers were experts in this type of execution. Remember the spear that went into his side? That was to prove that he was dead. And that blood and water came out. That was proof that he was dead. He was, he was dead 100%. The writers of Scripture have helped us to know that. And so because he was dead, the resurrection offers us what? New life. The newness of life that we can walk in. And so we grasp those two things. The third thing, I ask you to repeat after me, is this. Say, we must live... Out our freedom in Christ. We must live out our freedom in Christ. Verse 11 through 14, this is the application to the message. So Paul, he goes on ahead and he breaks it down. And then in verse 11, he begins to give us a full application. What does this mean for me? How am I supposed to live this out? There's a practical side. I want you to get this about sanctification. Sanctification has two participants in it. God is one and you are the other. Are you here? Are you here? Yes. Amen. God is one who's sanctifying you, but you are part of the process. God doesn't, listen to me when I say this, God does not sanctify you apart from you. Are you here? <laughs> he doesn't make you holy if you are not participating. God is not while you're sleeping sprinkling holy pixie dust over you. Are you here? Y'all again. 
You have to understand that sanctification requires work on your part. It does not save you. Get me when I say this. We already know who saved us. It is God who saves. It is not us who saves ourselves. It is not us who secures ourselves. Listen, you and I doing these things don't secure our salvation. They help us grow in the grace and knowledge of who God is. They help us become more like Jesus. They don't save us, but I want you to know that we need to make sure that we are participating the way God said it. How, how does God tell us to participate? So in verse 11, remember, the book of Romans is a logical book. So Paul walks you from one point to the next point. He walks you from one logical point to the next logical point. So he says like this. He says, likewise, you also, first thing he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's the first application point. Reckon yourselves. Reckon yourselves. What does that word reckon mean? It means to count yourselves. It means to recount is what it's talking about. It's talking about reminding yourself, wrecking yourself. Make sure you understand that you have what? That you, that these things are a reality. And listen, you and I need to be reminded often. What? You're dead to me. We need to be reminded often when that sinful nature rises up, you are dead to me. I'm not walking with you, and not only that, but I have been given new life because I am born again, which makes the question, listen, if you, hear me when I say this, if you are walking in defeat by sin, you need to ask yourself a question, have you been born again? If you are in a defeated relationship, sin is overcoming your life. Sin is overcoming the areas of your life, whether it's your thought life, whether it's your actions, whether it's your words, whatever it is, you need to ask yourself, have you been born again? I didn't say, did you say a prayer? I didn't say, did you cry some tears? I didn't say, did you, do you believe some certain things or tenets of the faith? I said, have you been born again? Because when you're born again, you have new life in you. And that new life in you enables you to live for the glory of God. You know what the problem in today's church is, especially in our westernized Christianity, is that we just want people to say a prayer. We just want people to come to an altar. We just want people to make some confession of faith. And then we're like, hey, we had all these people get saved. But the question is this, have they been born again? Do their lives demonstrate the fruit that comes from being born again? Paul goes on to say what? He says in verse 12, he says, therefore, you remember he, he likes to use therefore a lot. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in its lust. So what is the second application? The first one is you reckon. The second one is what? It is that you don't allow sin to reign. Did you hear how he said that? You don't let sin reign. What does that mean for us? That means you and I have a decision to make. It's not this stuff, oh, God, please take this away. Walk away. <laughs> Walk away from your sin. Say no to your sin. Close the doors on your sin. Recognize where your sin is. I love what one preacher said. One preacher, he would travel, and whenever he would go to travel, and he would go to preach in different places, he knew that he had a, a terrible problem with lust in his past. And whenever he would go to the hotels we would stay at, he would call ahead and he would tell them, listen, I need you to disconnect the television in my room. Now, that sounds crazy. Like, why can't he go do it, right, himself? But, it, but he didn't stop there. What he would do is when the guys would walk up with him to the room, he would have them go and check the TV. And if the television was still connected to the cable, you know what he would say? Can you please disconnect that for me? Because he knew where he was, and he wanted to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, him all by himself in a room trying to wrestle with this. He wanted to make sure that thing was disconnected, the cables were gone, so he couldn't say yes. He knew where his weakness was. 
He was honest about it. And he said what? I am going to not allow sin to reign in my life. I'm going to recognize. This means we have to fight against our sin. Paul goes on to say what? He says, and do not present your members in verse 13 as instruments of unrighteousness to sin or to the sinful nature, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as, as instruments of righteousness to God. What is the third thing there? The third thing is that we are to present our members. We present them to who we want. Are you here? We either present them to our sinful nature and we say, you know what, I'm going to make provision for the flesh. I'm going to make provision for my, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and indulge my flesh. I'm going to watch those programs. I'm going to listen to that music. I'm going to go to those places. I'm going to be around those people. I'm going to participate in those activities. You know what you're doing when you say yes to all of that? You are offering the your body as instruments of unrighteousness to your sinful nature. When you say no to those things, you're saying what? You're saying, I am offering my body to God as instruments of righteousness. And I want you to know that word instruments is an interesting word because in some of your translations, it says a weapon. When you look it up, it can be a weapon. You know what? We should use our bodies as weapons against sin, not for sin. Are you here? Our decisions have grave effects and can hurt other people in big ways. And so the apostle goes on, he says in verse 14, he says, for, sh for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Understand this, please. Jesus already paid the price. We have already received the benefits, but it is our choice as to who or what will reign over us. Either the law, which beats us down, or grace, which lifts us up. It's a choice that we make. Do you want the law to beat you down, or do you want grace to lift you up? You make the choice. So my closing question is this. Does your life reflect the truth of what Jesus did for you? Does it reflect the truth of what Jesus did for you? Remember what I said earlier? I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the fact that what Jesus did for us should be reflected in the way that we live for him. Does your life reflect the truth of what Jesus did for you? Maybe you're sitting there, you're like, you know, my thoughts, my thought life does not reflect what Jesus did for him. God's grace is sufficient. If you'll repent and you'll trust him, God will strengthen you so your thought life will will reflect what Jesus did for you. Maybe your emotions don't do that. Maybe the way that you go from zero to 100 show, man, somebody else on the throne. Jesus is not on the throne. Maybe that's where it's at. And you know what? You need to repent. You need to ask God to forgive you for that. Maybe your life choices don't reflect what Jesus has done for you. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But you know what? I know somebody in here or somebody that's hearing us, you're struggling because you're like, man, my life doesn't reflect this. Well, two things. Number one, are you born again? Have you been born again? Has the Spirit of God come to take residence in you and give you dominion over your sinful nature? Has that happened? Have you really put your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you really turned from your sin and put your faith in him? And the second thing, if you say yes to that, but you're struggling in an area, you know what? God's grace is sufficient. And he wants to give you the grace. But you know what you got to start at? You got to start at the place of reckoning. You have to reckon that you are dead to your sinful nature and you are alive in Jesus Christ. I close with this thought here. The truth sets us free as the truth settles in our hearts. So let's stand on our feet and let's pray together. Father, we humble our hearts before you this day. And we ask you, Spirit of God, search our hearts. You know what's going on inside of us, God. Father, I pray for those in this place that do not know you. God, may they call upon you today. 
Holy Spirit, grip their hearts with your love, with your conviction, and give them the grace that is necessary for them to turn. Father, for my brothers and my sisters that are struggling with sin in their lives that is overcoming them, God, may you empower them to overcome their sin. You've already given them the victory. Help them to walk in it for real. God, we thank you for the truth that you're working in us. Give us the grace to work with you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Come on and give God a hand of praise. He's worthy.